What keeps a family together? What keeps a family together? Over the years, through all the trials, the ups and the downs, the tribulations, what actually keeps a family together? This is not an academic question for me. Uh, my, my parents divorced when I was in college. And uh, the reason they divorced was because my dad didn't love my mom anymore. And no amount of duty was going to keep him in that marriage. I think when we, when we think about what keeps a family together, we, we immediately think, well, it's, it's love, right? Love keeps a family together. That's, that's certainly what it seemed to be lacking, you know, in my, my own family growing up. Makes sense. The thing is, the last few years seem to have called that into question. Is, is the answer to the question, what keeps the family together, is, is it really love? Is love sufficient? We, we've always known that, that things like abuse or betrayal or neglect will sever the bonds of affection. But these days, I think most of us at least know of families. Some of us are part of families that have been divided over things like politics or culture war issues. All of a sudden, holidays have become fraught and uncomfortable. Families get together, and the only things they can talk about are the playoffs or the weather. And everything else has to be carefully avoided if the fragile togetherness is going to be maintained. Many of us will know of of adult children who've cut off their parents, or vice versa, over these kinds of things. Friendsgiving is now preferred by many to Thanksgiving, and people are about their chosen families rather than their given families. And you, and you would ask these people, and they'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, we still love each other, but no, can't hang out with them. Not because of these disagreements. Is love really enough to keep a family together anymore? The New Testament describes the church as a spiritual family. So what keeps the church together? Is love enough? It would seem not. You know, if you're paying attention to the news, if you're talking to various church leaders. I was on the phone this week with another church leader here in Portland, and he was telling me that his church had lost hundreds and hundreds of people these last couple of years over these same issues that I've already mentioned that have divided our biological families, politics, the pandemic, culture war stuff. People who've spent decades worshiping together claiming the same Savior, won't talk to each other anymore. I think the truth is, if we're honest, affection, that, that, that affection of love, as important as it is, has actually never been enough to keep a family together, whether biological or spiritual. 
So I ask again, what keeps a family together? What is sufficient to keep a family together? If you've been around for a while, you know that we've been studying the book of 1 Corinthians since early September. And this is a letter that that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and that church was deeply divided. But but from the beginning of the letter, he's been arguing for their unity, trying to keep them together. In fact, if if you look, I'll just remind you, you don't have to turn there, but the very first chapter, chapter 1, verse 10, kind of starts off the letter, now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you, that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. This is what Paul's been about in this letter. And today we come to the conclusion. We come to the very end of the letter, and we're going to hear his final exhortations to this church that, that, that he's been trying to urge to stay together. What is it that finally secures our unity? Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Uh, if you're using one of the Bibles we've provided, this is found on page 1022, 1022, 1 Corinthians 16. We looked at the first half of this chapter uh, last week. We're going to finish it out this week. We're going to begin in chapter 13, uh, verse 13. Not many verses, so I'm just going to go ahead and read it right now. So follow along with me. 1 Corinthians 16, beginning in verse 13. Be alert. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. Brothers and sisters, you know the household of Stephanus. They are the first fruits of Achaia and have devoted themselves to serving the saints. I urge you also to submit to such people and everyone who works and labors with them. I'm delighted to have Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus present because these men have made up for your absence, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, recognize such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla send you greetings warmly in the Lord, along with the church that meets in their home. All the brothers and sisters send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. This greeting is in my own hand, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with all of you in Christ Jesus. Paul has spent the entire letter urging unity in this church. And as he's moved through this letter, he's kind of, he's refocused our attention on Christ crucified. He's he's defined our our spirituality, what what it means to be a Christian, not in like external things like food or sex or even our giftedness, but in the internal reality of a holy life that, that builds up, that edifies others rather than exalting ourselves. But right here at the end, As with all of his letters, he gets to his final exhortations, and this is kind of where he's summing everything up. And and what does he say? Here's what I think he's saying. Our unity is secured by love. Our unity is secured by love. Now, is that surprising to you? 
It seems like he hasn't talked about love very much in this letter. He's talked about a lot of other things. I think what we need to understand as we dive into these final verses of the book is that Paul is not talking about the sentimental love of affection, but an active, submissive, and dependent love. As we consider the love that secures our unity as a church, I want you to be thinking about yourself. I want you to be thinking about how you might grow in expressing that love, and even more importantly, how you might need to experience that love. Our unity is secured by love. And that means, first, we should act in love. We should act in love. Look again there at verse 13. Be alert, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. All right, so Paul's final exhortations here in verse 13 should sound familiar to you. Because because he says, like, okay, we're to be alert, we're to stand firm in the faith, we're to be courageous and strong. Now, those are all like military images. But but really what's going on here is he's, he's encouraging them to pursue the very things that he said at the beginning of the letter God was doing in them. In fact, at the beginning of the letter, he, he kind of thanked God for doing these things, and now he's encouraging them at the end of the letter to actually pursue those things. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, he says about God, God will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think really when we think about these first four exhortations of be alert, stand firm, be courageous, be strong, it's not so much that it's four different things, it's like one thing that he's talking about, looked at from from different angles. Uh, we, We could, I think, sum it up by simply saying Paul wants them to stand firm in the faith. He doesn't want them to be moved away from it. And when he says that, he's not meaning their subjective faith. He's actually saying, I want you to stand firm on the faith, the the objective faith once delivered, the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified. Now, now if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not going to understand anything about the rest of what Paul is going to say about love or what I'm going to say about love if you don't first understand this, the gospel. Because the gospel is the demonstration of God's love. Now, I, I know most of us, we, we like to just assume God's love. God's love, of course he loves. Can't do anything else but love. Wouldn't be God if he didn't love. And so we just sort of take his love for granted. But I think the truth is a little bit more complicated, isn't it? To begin with, we're not very lovable. Like he may be love, but we're not very lovable. We have all, every single one of us, turned away from God. We are by our very nature, God-haters, not God-lovers. And and our hatred of God deserves God's judgment. Because to hate what is supremely good, that's not an indictment of the thing that's supremely good. That's an indictment of the hater. There's no good reason to hate that which is supremely good, and that is God. And so in our very rejection of him, we condemn ourselves. But here's the 
the beauty of the gospel. God loved the world anyway. And he did it this way. He sent his son to live a a, a life of love that we should have lived but have not. And then in love, the, the son, Jesus Christ, who lived this life of perfect love, then gave that life in our place as a substitute for us. He took the punishment that we deserved. He died on the cross, sacrificing for us. There has never been a greater act of love than the father sending the son that he loves to die for people who hate him. There's never been a greater act of love than the son in love, willingly giving his life for people who hated his father. That would be us. That love did not go unanswered. No, the the love of the father and the love of the son were both vindicated as God raised Jesus from the dead three days later. And now anyone who is willing to repent of their hatred towards God and to instead put their faith in Christ is is forgiven of their sins and and brought into the love of God as God regenerates us, as as, as we are born again with, with new hearts, hearts that are filled with love that overflows towards the God that we once hated. Friend, if you're not a Christian, I'm not sure what you think Christians want of you. Maybe you think we want you to somehow be different than you are. We want you to vote the way that we vote or, I don't know, do the things that we do. That's not true. Here's what we want of you. We want you to know God's love. We want you to experience the same love of God that we have experienced. You may continue to vote different than us. You, 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 may, be, you may continue to kind of be into different things than, than I'm into or, or other friends here are into. That, that's fine. What we want more than anything else is for you to know God's love. We'd love to talk to you more about that. Come, come find me afterwards. Talk, talk to the person that you came with. Maybe you know a Christian here. What, what would it mean for you today to accept that God loves you and to love him in return? Well, Christian, as we think about this, recognize that there, there are so many things that can, that can move us off of the gospel. There, there are so many things that can, that can keep us from, from holding fast to the truth of the gospel. And, and they're kind of encapsulated in these first four exhortations, right? We can be deceived by the enemy. And so we need to be alert to his schemes. When he, when he comes at us with false promises, when he, when he comes at us with, with doubts or, or just distractions, we need to be alert. We can also grow fearful at the consequences of following Christ. So we need to be courageous. And, and in our culture that is increasingly moving away from, it, from its kind of historic Christian roots, the consequences are ramping up. I get that. It's not easy to follow Jesus anymore in America. 
And, and so we need courage. It, it's also a, it's a long haul. We can grow weary as we await Christ's return. And so we need to be strong. We need to not give up. And of course, we can lose our convictions. And so we need to take our stand on the gospel, firmly planted on the truth of Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised for sinners like us. Now, all throughout his letter, Paul has been addressing these issues, right? From from the deceptions of those who claim to superior ministry because of their superior oratory, or, or the enlightened theology of those that kind of downplayed sin by devaluing the body and saying, well, it doesn't really matter what you do with your body because the body doesn't matter. Or, or, or the superior piety of some that made way too much of the body and began to define what it means to follow Christ in terms of asceticism. Paul again and again has been addressing these various things that will come along and move us off of the gospel. And here, finally, once again, he is calling them back to the truth of the faith, reminding them, yep, these things are coming at you. Don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard. Take your stand. So one final time, he calls them here to persevere in the gospel, not going above the line, not going below the line, because the stakes are high. As as he said at the beginning, he wants them to be found blameless in Christ at the end. And so, and so our, our theology, our, our, our knowledge of Scripture and our convictions about Scripture, these are important. These things really, really matter. Because, because to leave the gospel, to, to be moved off of the gospel, is to move outside of the safety of God's love. But what's interesting is verse 14. Because I think if he just said, be alert, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, we'd say, yep, get it. We've been hearing that all through this letter. But, but there's this one last exhortation, and it doesn't come from the beginning of the letter. It actually comes from the middle, from the climax of the letter. Verse 14, do everything in love. So if the first Four, I mentioned, you know, that it's kind of martial military imagery. If, if the first four exhortations are our marching orders, the, 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 these are the, the, the commands that, that the Lord has given to his people. If these are our marching orders, well, then this last exhortation is really about the banner under which we march. One Puritan put it this way, love is the saint's insignia. You know what an insignia is? It's the patch on a, on a, on a soldier's shoulder that, that lets everybody know what, what unit he's a part of. Our insignia is love. We are an army of love. Now, as I said, Paul doesn't mention love in the introduction. You'll remember we spent the first number of weeks as we're going through here thinking about like division because of different preachers, wisdom and humility, and like love never comes up. But if you've been paying attention, right, he's been building up to this. He kind of builds up to love and then he he springs the trap. 
They, they wanted to define their spirituality or what it means to be a Christian in terms of their great theology or their, their enlightened practice. Sin doesn't bother us. Or, or most of all, we noticed, they wanted to define their spirituality, what it means to be a Christian in terms of their giftedness. But I hope you notice that right about chapter 8, and going from chapter 8 all the way to chapter 14, Paul made the case that true spirituality, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Christ and to have been changed by Christ, true spirituality is about love, a, a Christ-like love that builds others up rather than exalting itself. So, so just keep your, keep your finger on chapter 16, but, but flip back. Uh, it, it really begins in, in chapter 8, where Paul says now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that, quoting the Corinthians, we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And then he moves on into chapter 9, and he uses himself as an example of someone who sacrifices himself for the good of others. And, and then you, you get into chapter 10, and after giving them a warning from Israel's history, he comes back to this question of, you know, what are we allowed to do and what are we not allowed to do? And in chapter 10, verse 24, he says, no one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. Now, he doesn't use the word love there, but he's describing love. This is what love wants, the good of the beloved. And, and then as we, as we move on, he is going to rebuke them for a lot of unloving attitudes toward each other in, in chapter uh, 11. But then you get to chapter 12, and he's taking up this whole issue of gifts. And, and what does he say in chapter 12, verse 26? So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. We don't exalt ourselves. No, we are with one another in our joys and in our sorrows. It's a description of love. And then, of course, you get to the chapter on love, which, as we saw, was not a sappy, sentimental love chapter, but a sharp and pointed rebuke that you guys, this is what love looks like and it's not you, right? Verse, verse four, love is patient, but you guys aren't. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love is not boastful. Love is not arrogant. What has he been rebuking them for? A lot of boasting and arrogance. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not irritable. It does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Exactly the opposite of what they had been doing in chapter 5, where they were rejoicing in this man's sin. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then finally in chapter 14, he comes back to where he started in chapter 8, verse 1, chapter 14, verse 1, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Why prophesy? Because it builds others up, which is the way he's defined love to begin with. And then chapter 14, verse 12, so also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building up the church. 
It turns out that even though he didn't talk about love at the beginning, this is where he was heading all along. And, and the whole central section of the book was all about love. Not sentiment, not mere affection, but a love that acts in order to build up the beloved. So Paul wants them, going back to chapter 16 now, Paul wants them to to stand firm in the gospel. He doesn't want them to move off good Bible teaching, good doctrine, the theology is important. But Paul understands that convictions about the gospel are worthless unless those convictions work themselves out, express themselves in lives of Christ-like love that prove and demonstrate both the power and the wisdom of the gospel. Now, the other side of this is also true. Love is not mere sentimentality or affection for Paul. No, love is this really kind of meaty thing that that is grounded in the truth of Christ crucified, that takes its stand there and then lives out a Christ-like life of love. This is his final exhortation to the church in Corinth. Do everything in love. So I know we got a lot of visitors today, but let me just talk to the members of Henson for a moment. We are known as a church that takes theology and the Bible seriously. We're known as a Bible church. We're known as like a theological church. We understand that that error does not have squatter's rights, that that loving God means taking God at his word. But we get to the end of the book of 1 Corinthians, where there's been a lot of theology, and I think we're left with this question. Are we also known as a church that loves like Jesus loves? Are Are we known as a church that not just affectionately, but sacrificially loves one another. Now, I think we are, but I also know we could grow in this. Like, you know, your your kid never says to you, dad, mom, I I got enough love. I don't need any more love from you. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm filled up with love. No, it doesn't happen. No, there's, there's, there's always more growth in love, right, in, in our own biological families. So it is here in the church. How, how can we grow, not just in doing what the Bible says, but doing it in love? I think of a church that I used to be a part of a long time ago in which uh, there was real change happening in the church. It had been a huge church at one point in time. It had kind of dwindled in size, and the members that were left were largely older. And then things began to change, and and new members, younger members, began to come into the church. And a lot of the older members found that really difficult, because new people come in, young people come in, and they want to change everything. That's what young people do. But there was this one older couple, and they just decided, you know what, we're going to love these young people as they come in. We're just going to love them. They would stand in the hallway and introduce themselves and, 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 and greet 
the young people as they came in. And they went out of their way to like bring these new young members into their lives. They would invite them over to their home. Eventually, uh, the, the, the gentleman, we'll call him, it's not his name, but we'll call him Harold. Harold died. You know who showed up to Harold's funeral? All those young people. Because he'd loved them. Well, his wife, we'll call her Helen, Helen and Harold. Not really their names, but doesn't matter. Uh, Helen just, now she's alone, but she keeps on loving all these young people that are coming into the church. And eventually, Helen's health fails. She has a stroke. She's in the hospital. And she's alone. Her husband's dead. There, There are no kids that are around to visit. She's just alone in the hospital. But she's never alone because different small groups in the church, all of them young people, keep visiting her in the hospital. And it's happening so much that that one day one of the elders is there and the nurse pulls the elder aside. She didn't know he was an elder in the church. She just knew he looked like more like a grown-up. And and the nurse says to him, who's who's this lady? Is she famous? Because all, all these young people keep visiting her. And he said, no, she's not famous. She's just a member of our church. And she loved those people. And they love her. See, that's that's the kind of love I'm talking about here. A love that goes out of its way. That that inconveniences itself. To, To love the person that you would naturally love. But we love that way because we've been loved that way. How can we grow in that kind of love? You are already doing it. You you all loved my family so well when we went through the trials of my oldest son's illness. I have no doubt of this church's love. I hope you don't either. I just want you to remember that like, you, you never really arrive when it comes to love, right? There's always more. There's always more ways that we can love one another and grow deeper in our love for one another. Let's do everything in love so that the world knows that we have been loved with everything that God had to give. There is no unity apart from truth. So in emphasizing love here, I don't mean to be downplaying truth. There is no unity apart from truth. But truth alone, just being correct, is insufficient. Truth without love simply takes the group of people that hold that truth, but as soon as somebody's kind of a little little bit like on the edge of the truth, you cut them off and you cut them off and you cut them off, and truth just keeps narrowing and narrowing and narrowing the circle that isn't combined with love until all you're left with is you and two friends who happen to agree with you on everything. This was the experience of one of my favorite Christian authors, J.C. Ryle who wrote some really, really useful books. We've got them on our books, so you should read them. But by the end of his life, he didn't feel like he could be part of any church. It was just him and his wife. Because he didn't agree with anybody else. Now, love, love teaches us how to bear with one another. To bear with one another in our weaknesses. I mean, do we, do we cut off our kids, our children, when they act childish? No, 
That's what kids do. <laughs> they act childish. And we keep loving them. So we bear with one another, right, in our weakness, in our childishness. We, we, we persevere with each other in hardship and trial when it gets hard to love. Because all of a sudden, the person now that I'm called to love actually is a little needy, and it's hard to love needy people. But we persevere. Now, yes, love, love knows where to draw lines because love will not allow the beloved to continue in self-deception or soul-destroying sin. And so this last year, we had two really difficult cases of discipline. But we acted in those two cases, not because we were angry, not because we had stopped loving the person, but precisely because we loved them so much. Love patiently bears with weakness. Love bears with fearfulness, with brokenness, and even with ignorance. Love understands that, that people are messy. They don't grow in straight lines and smooth graphs. And love is willing to get in there and get messy with them. Love values the beloved more than itself. Now, I think when I compare our experience as a church with other churches in our area, who I think suffered a lot more, lost a lot more people, found the whole thing way more challenging, I think that your love for one another in the gospel is one of the things that got us through it all, through the divisiveness and the partisanship of the pandemic and the election and the riots but here's the thing. Those things may be, you know, in the rearview mirror, <laughs> but the road is still ahead. And we don't know what challenges to our unity are going to come in this next year. We don't know. I mean, another election is coming. There are going to be new and more cultural pressures. There are going to continue to be attempts to define the faith in terms of something other than Christ and Him crucified. So church, now is the time. Now in this time of kind of relative peace, we're not in the middle of some crisis. Now is the time, therefore, for us to grow in our love for one another, to, to recommit to doing everything in love and nothing for partisan advantage or personal gain. Now's the time because we don't know what's coming. And I think in particular, if I could you know, challenge us just here a little bit, Maybe you think, preacher, you've already done that. Move on. No, no, I've got one more. Let's continue to grow in our love for one another in the congregation that are different from us. Now, difference comes out in lots of different ways. It, it could be a generational difference. It could be a cultural difference. It could be an ethnic difference or dare I even say, a political difference. But if the gospel is true, and it is, none of those differences should be a match for our love for one another in Christ and Him crucified. So again, I ask you, how can you, how can we grow in our Christ-like love one another.
because it is as we act in love that our unity is secured. But it's not just acting in love that secures our unity. Second, we should also submit to love. We should submit to love. Look at verse 15. Brothers and sisters, you know the household of Stephanas. They are the first fruits of Achaia and have devoted themselves to serving the saints. I urge you also to submit to such people and to everyone who works and labors with them. I'm delighted to have Stephanas, Fortunatus, and Achaicus present because these men have made up for your absence. They have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, recognize such people. The main exhortation in these verses is there in verse 15, or, or I, I guess it's actually verse 16, submit to such people. What, what sort of people? Well, he named some of them, Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaicus. These were the guys that brought the letter to Paul, and they may be sending, the, the, the return letter may uh, be coming back by them. And, and if you've been following along in Corinthians, by, by now you, you, you know the reason that they should submit to their leaders. The quickest way to destroy the unity of a church is to undermine and reject the leadership of the church. We saw from the very beginning, the Corinthians were riven and divided by factions around this leader and that leader, and I don't like your leader. I like this leader better. Yeah, that's, that's a really quick way to blow up the church. But here's the thing about authority in the church and submitting to authority in the church. Authority in the church is not like the authority of the government. The authority of our government is kind of imposed upon us, right? They have the power of the sword. They can literally lock you up and put you in jail. So there's, there's an authority that is exercised over you, whether you like it or not. It's also not like the authority of reality, right? Like physics or gravity. Physics and gravity also have a kind of authority in your life. And you can pretend that gravity is not true, but it will exert, it will impose its authority on you and you will fall down. Yet that's not what church authority is like. Church authority is more like the authority of a, of a professor in a college class or, or, or a coach on a team you decide to join. Nobody has to join the team. No, nobody has to take that particular class. You could take a different class. But, but in taking the class and in, in joining the team, you voluntarily submit to the authority of that professor or that coach because you think there's something about that professor or that coach that's, that's worth it, that's, that's worth giving up some of your freedom for, that's worth submitting to. This is kind of what authority in the church is like. It is a voluntary submission to the elder's authority, and, and Paul understands that. I think that's why he says, submit to such people. People like the household of Stephanus, whose character and whose experience commend them to you. Paul points out there uh, that, that uh, the household of Stephanus are the, the first fruits of Achaia. What does that mean? It means they were the first ones to become Christians. They, they, they were the, the promise that more was to come, but, but they were the first that responded to Paul's preaching. And, and part of what that means, therefore, is they've been following Christ longer than the rest of them. So, so not only do they know what they're talking about, because they're just a little bit ahead of everybody else, 
But because of that time, they've actually been tested and proven. I'm reminded of Paul's words to Timothy that he'll write much later when Timothy is pastoring the church in Ephesus, and he says to Timothy, an elder must not be a new convert, or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. No, these elders in the church in Corinth, they weren't, they weren't new converts. I mean, comparatively, they were new because Christianity hadn't been around that long. But compared to everybody else, they'd been at it for a while. They had some experience. But it's not just their experience that Paul highlights here. He highlights their character. You, you see that there in, in verse 15, they have devoted themselves to serving the saints. Or in ver- verse 18, they're the kind of people that, that refresh your spirit. It's interesting. There's a little bit of a wordplay going on here. This, this word devote, devoted to, and this word submit, submit to these people. Those two words are actually closely related. You don't have to know Greek to hear it. The two words are tasso and hupotasso. He's doing a little word game here. To, to submit to hupotasso is to put yourself under someone else's authority. But, but it's interesting, this word to be devoted to, they've devoted themselves. Well, that's the word tasso. And it doesn't mean what we kind of think of it meaning. When we talk about being devoted to something, it means like we're really into it, we're committed to it. But, but the way Paul's using the word and the way it worked in the, the language of the time is it means to have been put in charge of something. To be devoted to something is to be in charge of it. So as Paul's saying here, submit to the people who are in charge of you. That's not what he's saying. If you, if you read quickly, you might think that's what he's saying. Submit to the people that are in charge. But actually, he says something a little more interesting. He says, submit to the people who are in charge of serving you. They're in charge of serving. Pastors, elders, are not in charge of the saints. No, what we're in charge of is serving the saints. Pastors are people that have given themselves to the work of your good, your your benefit. So Paul really is saying, submit to the people who are devoted to your good. Not to people who aren't devoted to your good. Submit to the people who are devoted to your service, not the people that are devoted to serving themselves. Submit, in other words, to love. Because love seeks the good of the beloved. Let me speak to the elders of our church for a moment. Brothers, this is a weighty verse, I think. And it might not have hit you that way to begin with. But this is a weighty verse for us. The church is called to submit to our leadership and our authority. How are we doing being such men, such men as these who are worthy of that submission. Brothers, are we known in this church for our service? Or are we known for being concerned for the good of the flock rather than our own comfort, our own position? Are, are, are we the kind of men that when people are around us, 
say, that was so refreshing being with you. You refreshed my spirit. I hope we are that. I know we can grow in it. I, I think it'd be good for each of us. There are only 12 of us here that are currently serving as elders. It'd be, it'd be good for each of us to think this week, how can I grow more to be such a man that is known for devoting himself to the good of the flock, that, that is known as someone who is refreshing to be with? Now, church, the, the, the chief kind of skill of an elder that Paul enjoins is the ability to teach. It's kind of the one skill that we have to have. We've got to be Bible guys. We should be the kind of men that when you are with us, you walk away understanding the Bible better, not worse. That's the chief skill. But the chief quality of an elder, it's not his age, it's not his leadership qualities. It's this. It's, it's, it's that quality of being devoted to serving the flock, of exercising the authority that's been given us to feed the flock, to, to tend the sheep, to, to build you up. El elders really are just under-shepherds. We are doing what the chief shepherd does, and he is to be our mentor and our model. So as you think about recognizing new elders, church, look for men who are clearly taking their cues from Jesus. Yes, they're good teachers. Yes, they're, they're faithful with the scriptures. But, but we want you to be looking for men. And, and hopefully, we're going to be recommending men that you can say, oh, yeah, obviously, because he didn't even need to be an elder before he was known for serving the flock and building us up. And that's been our experience, so we're happy to recognize him as an elder. Look for men who are known, yes, for their maturity, but also for their love. Now, at the same time, church, remember that your elders are not Jesus. We really need you to remember this. Every day, I fail to love you as I ought, sometimes spectacularly. I got an email to, to that effect this week. And it, it's, that's, it's hard to hear. It's hard to hear. But it's true. Every week, your elders fail to love you as we ought. Which is why your pastors need the gospel every bit as much as you do. So church, one of the ways you can serve your elders, don't put us on a pedestal. Point us to Jesus, even as we seek to point you to Jesus. Now, I know submission to authority is, is scary. And in a fallen world, we're never going to be able to remove all the risk. But what we can submit to is love. So, so again, if, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, understand that, that this is what we do when we submit to God's authority. Yeah, when, when, when we submit to God's authority, it's going to mess with our lives. He's, he's going to exercise his authority on our sexuality and, and our, our 
relationships and our, our use of money and like what we're doing with ourselves. He's going to exercise authority over all of that. But we can submit to that. Not because we like everything he says, but because we are confident that he loves us. And he's proven that love at the cross. Christian, this is what we do when we submit to the elders' authority in our lives or, or the congregation's authority over our lives collectively. The, the God who gave his son for us is the same God who established these different authorities in our lives. And we don't always like what those authorities say. But we can trust the God who established those authorities. Because the God who gave us parents, so kids, if you have parents, they're an authority in your life and you don't always like it, but the God who put them there as an authority in your life, the God who established elders, the God who established the authority of the church as a whole is the God who sent his son to die for us. There's just no question that he loves us. And so whenever we submit to godly authority, and I'm not saying you should submit to abusive authority, ungodly authority, but whenever we submit to godly authority, we are ultimately trusting in God's love. And there really is no question about that. Our unity is secured as we act in love and as we submit to love. But third and finally, and much more briefly, our unity is secured as we depend on love, and not just any love, but on God's gracious love for us. Look at verse 19. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla send you greetings warmly in the Lord, along with the church that meets in their home. All the brothers and sisters send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. This greeting is in my own hand, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with all of you in Christ Jesus. So Paul now is concluding the letter. He kind of has nothing left to say, except the greetings, which in Greek letters come at the end, not the beginning. And, and, and he kind of piles it on, right? So he brings all these warm greetings from the churches in Asia, which is modern-day Turkey, and especially that, that church in, in Ephesus, probably that's meeting in Aquila and Priscilla's home. They send their love. And this is so important, right? Because we've been reading through 1 Corinthians, like from beginning in verse 10, like all the way until we get here, it's just hard words. Like he has hardly anything nice to say. He has hardly anything encouraging to say. So he said a lot of hard words for them. But here at the end, he wants them to know, oh, I didn't say those in anger. I don't say that because I, I hate you. I, I think badly of you. No, no, he, he loves them. And, and not just him, like all, all the churches love them. Yeah, a bad report has come. And I'm sure other Christians have heard of it, but it doesn't mean they don't love you anymore. It doesn't mean that they don't think well of you anymore. No, they all send their love. We don't love each other because we're always right or because we always agree. 
No, no, we, we love each other because we're family in Christ. And this is what our association with other churches is all about, right? As we have long been associated with the uh, CV Northwest. And as recently, we've we formed a new association of churches here in the Northwest called the Northwest Church Network. And as, as we're thinking about joining a, nas- a new national association of churches this evening as we vote on the proposal to join the Association of Churches for Missions and Evangelism. All of that is really simply meant as an expression of our love for one another because we're family. And of course, he, he wants the Corinthians to express that same love toward each other with a holy kiss. What's a holy kiss? Well, I don't know. I know what it's not. No, that is not what I was thinking of. That was not what I was thinking of. Here's what I'm thinking of. I know it's not the hypocritical kiss of Judas, right? And, and I know it's not what you were thinking of, the carnal kiss of the pagans. It was some sort of kiss. I don't know. But it was a kiss that was unfeigned. It was sincere, an expression of love for one another. Does this mean you have to start kissing each other? I don't think so. I think culturally we could probably accomplish the same thing with a handshake, maybe a hug. This is cultural. But some way or another, we should be expressing, physically even, our love for one another. And then he gets personal. He takes the pen away from his amanuensis, and he writes the final greeting in his own hand. There's this one last warning. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. It's the language of final judgment. It's kind of his last shot across the bow of the false and divisive teachers in the church. Oh, but but those who love the Lord don't fear his coming, right? And so as soon as he's pronounced that curse, he's like, oh, but Lord, come. Because the the, the lover always wants to see the beloved. Paul prays that the grace of the Lord will be with them, and he assures them of his own love for them in the Lord. And it's striking because this is the only letter of Paul's where he ends with such an intimate expression of love. I want you to note, though, that final prayer, verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. You see, at the end of the day, it's not our love for each other that preserves our unity or our faith. It is the Lord's love for us, his unmerited, unearned grace, which then produces in us an extraordinary love for God and for each other. The kind of love that Paul has displayed throughout this letter, a love that is willing to say hard things, yes, but that will not give up, will not let the beloved go. Friends, only the love of Christ in us can produce a Christ-like love between us. Hence, and it's the gracious love of God for us that we must depend on. The love of God that is displayed in the gospel because it's his love that transforms us. It's his love that that makes us holy through Christ. It's his love that produces love, a love that the world knows nothing of 
a love that the world cannot explain, but desperately needs. And therefore, it must be his love that we take our stand on. The, the, the seemingly foolish and weak love of God in Christ crucified, but we know that his love displayed at the cross is both the power and the wisdom of God for our salvation. Our unity is secured by love. Our love for one another, yes, but ultimately his love for us in the gospel because it is his love for us that produces Christ-like love in us. We don't know what's coming. We don't know what challenges are ahead. We don't know what forces are coming to try to rip this family apart yet again. So brothers and sisters, as we conclude this book, let us take our stand on the gospel of love and then do everything in love that that gospel produces in us. And we will have nothing to fear. Would you pray with me? Take a moment and consider what needs to happen in your life this week because of the love of God for you. Heavenly Father, it, 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 beggar, it beggars the mind, it beggars our imagination that, that you would love us with such a love as this. Jesus Christ crucified for us. Lord, we pray that we would take our stand on that love. We pray that you would be so kind as to transform us through that love. We pray that we would go out into this week now depending on nothing but your love for us in the gospel. And we ask that our lives would be a demonstration of your love. We pray this in the name and for the sake of Jesus, who has loved us even unto death. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.